thank you so much, Pastor Caleb, for that kind introduction, and thank you all for being here. It is truly a delight to be here this evening. I'm very grateful to Pastor Caleb and this church for this invitation to share with you all. And I thank each one of you who are here in the room today and those of you listening online for taking some of your precious time to hear some of my thoughts and to pray with us for an end to abortion. You know, tonight's event was announced as an evening to pray for the end of abortion. So I assume that most of you have come here tonight with the general belief that abortion should indeed end. Amen. Uh, but perhaps not all of us have taken the time to think about abortion's impacts, about how God views children in the womb, and the importance of Christians speaking in defense of life. So I want to touch on these topics with the hope of ensuring that everyone has a good sense of the urgency and the gravity of the situation and is also equipped with information that they can go share with others to help change minds and hearts on this issue and cultivate a culture that values and protects human life in the womb. I also want to share some specific prayer requests with you with an emphasis on a monumental decision now before the Supreme Court regarding abortion. Most experts on both sides of the issue agree that this is the most significant abortion-related case to reach the Supreme Court in nearly 30 years. So I will tell you a bit about that case, where abortion jurisprudence currently stands, and where we may be headed as a nation in protecting life. Hopefully that information will give you a better sense of the matters that you may want to cover in prayer, as Pastor Caleb said, to pray strategically. So to see and understand how God views life in the womb and why abortion is wrong, it's helpful to start by establishing that human life is uniquely valuable. So most of us already know that, uh, but let's just make it clear. Genesis 1 verse 27 says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So just think about that for a moment. Every single person is created in the image of God. So regardless of financial status, physical ability, skin color, or any other characteristic, each human being is made by God in his own image and precious in the eyes of God. So when we know that humans are created in God's image and are precious in his sight, we should ask, are unborn children humans who are therefore worthy of protection? Or is abortion, the intentional killing of unborn children, permissible? So fortunately, the Bible does not leave us guessing on that question. It makes clear that children in the womb are humans, just like you and me, and that they are precious in God's eyes. So I don't have time to preach a whole sermon tonight on that topic, but I want you to join me in considering two of my favorite passages on this subject. One is found in the first chapter of Luke. So there we read that Mary is greeted by the angel Gabriel 
who tells her that she is going to bear a son. And then, while pregnant with Jesus, Mary goes to visit one of her relatives, Elizabeth, who at that time is pregnant with John the Baptist. So we're about to have a meeting of four people, two women and the two boys that they are carrying inside of them. And something truly amazing happens. The Bible says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, we read in verses 41 and 44 that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and that John the Baptist leaped for joy in Elizabeth's womb. And in verse 43, Elizabeth says something that's very profound. She says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So what does this tell us about the value of children in the womb? Let's just consider John the Baptist for a moment. There he is while in the womb, leaping for joy in the presence of Jesus, the one whom he would proclaim in the wilderness. We also know from Luke 1 verse 15 that John was filled with the Holy Spirit before his birth, meaning that God made an unborn child a temple of the Holy Spirit. If John the Baptist could leap for joy in the womb, and God cared enough about him to give him the gift of the Holy Spirit before he even drew his first breath, we cannot view unborn children as mere disposable blobs of cells, as some people would suggest. Now, let's consider the unborn baby Jesus. Elizabeth refers to him, while he is still in the womb, as her Lord, because that is precisely who he was, even as an unborn child. You know, I think it's common for Christians to think of Jesus first coming to us as both God and man, as that adorable little baby in the manger. But that's not where the story begins. He first came to us as God and man, as that unborn child. He was fully God, and he was fully man, as Elizabeth recognized. So with that said about Luke chapter 1, let's turn to our second enlightening example. So do you all remember Samson, the supernaturally strong man with really long hair? Okay, well, the, the reason that he had really long hair is because he was a Nazarite, a person consecrated to God who has to observe certain special rules like dietary restrictions and the prohibition on haircutting. But do you know when Samson became a Nazarite? It was while he was an unborn baby. Indeed, Judges chapter 13, verses 3 through 7, tells us that an angel came to Samson's mother and told her not to eat or drink certain things while pregnant because Samson was to be, quote, a Nazarite of God from the womb. So you've probably heard the mantra, my body, my choice, which some use to try to justify abortion. Well, here, the Bible is making abundantly clear that when a woman is pregnant with one child, two bodies are involved, the body of the mother and the body of the child that is within her. So when a woman has an abortion, she is not just making a decision about her body. She is making a decision 
that ends the life of her child. God did not call Samson's mother to be a Nazarite, but she needed to observe certain dietary restrictions while pregnant so that the son that she carried could follow the vows of a Nazarite while still an unborn baby. That mattered to God because Samson was the same person inside the womb that he was outside the womb. So let's recap real quick. We have John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit and leaping for joy in the womb. We have Jesus being recognized as Lord while he was still in the womb. And we have Samson being required to follow the vows of a Nazarite with his mother's cooperation while still in the womb. These biblical accounts serve as powerful evidence that unborn children are in fact human beings who are precious in the sight of God. Now, when we confront those biblical truths showing that, that life in the womb is fully human and is very valuable, that can create a fair amount of guilt for many people. You know, anytime that you're addressing a group of any size, there's a good chance that there will be some people, both men and women, who have been affected by abortion in some way in the past. Perhaps they had an abortion themselves or pushed someone else to have an abortion or even pressured someone else to have an abortion. And they come to regret that decision. So I want to just say to you, and I want to encourage you to share with others when you address this topic, that we do serve a forgiving God. And so if abortion has affected you and you have turned to God for forgiveness, he has forgiven you. And if you've not sought forgiveness, God stands ready to forgive. As 1 John 1.9 assures us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, he will cleanse us and make us clean. So let's accept God's amazing grace that he has given to us put our sins and shame behind us and go forth to do all the wonderful things that he has created us to do. So I've talked to you a bit about what the Bible has to say about the value of life, and there's more passages to that effect. Now I'm just going to very briefly touch on the science because we all know that God is the creator of the world. So it's no surprise that science, our, our study of the world, confirms biblical truths. And that's certainly true in the case of unborn children. Dr. Jerome Lejeune was an accomplished geneticist. In fact, he's the one who discovered the chromosome composition that causes Down syndrome. And he said that, quote, life has a very long history, but each of us has a very definite beginning, the moment of conception. As one author put it, an unborn baby's genetic makeup is established at conception, determining to a great extent her own individual physical characteristics, such as gender, eye color, bone structure, hair color, skin color, susceptibility to certain diseases, and so on. So with the Bible and science showing us that abortion involves the killing of an innocent human being who is precious and valuable,
we know that we should work to save those children from death. And I am grateful that this church is already active in the pro-life movement. And I know that's not just true of the church as a whole, but of so many individuals here. So I thank you for all that you have already done to speak for life. You know, one of the key forces that are impacting our ability to protect children in the womb is the United States Supreme Court. Back in 1973, the Supreme Court delivered its Roe versus Wade decision announcing a constitutional right to abortion. And since then, statistics suggest that we as a nation have killed over 62 million children via abortion. You know, when I hear a number like that, it's hard for me to even comprehend it. But I want to help us try to comprehend it as best we can. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on vacation in whatever country you've always dreamed of visiting. And you wake up one morning and you see on the television or the internet that the United States has been hit with a nuclear blast. You see that the city of Phoenix is destroyed. In fact, the whole state of Arizona is gone. So is Seattle and all the rest of Washington. As you watch or read, the hard hits keep coming. The states of Nevada and Oregon have been blown off the map. So have Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico are only ash heaps. North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas. All the people who lived in those 18 states are now dead. If that happened, the death toll would be close to the number of people we have killed by abortion in the United States since the Supreme Court's Roe versus Wade decision. And as you know, each life is more than a simple statistic. We are each uniquely and wonderfully made by our creator to accomplish God's purposes. We may never know what we have lost by killing these children. But the Supreme Court has said that this killing is constitutionally protected. Now, if you read the Constitution, you'll find that it guarantees freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, and many other important liberties. But you won't read anything saying that we have a right to kill children in the womb. Ultimately, the Roe versus Wade decision twisted the Constitution, and it took this amazing document that is widely revered for its protection of life and liberty and said that it actually guarantees a right to kill children and that states cannot protect them. About 20 years after Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court directly confronted whether to keep or discard that decision. Tragically, in a five to four decision, the court chose to keep what it called those essential holding, which included the holding that abortion cannot be stopped before a child is sufficiently developed to have a realistic possibility of surviving outside the womb. That decision in 1992, nearly 30 years ago, was the very last time 
that the Supreme Court directly confronted its decision in Roe versus Wade. So for the past five decades, that is since 1973, states that have wanted to protect children in the womb have felt that their hands were tied by the Supreme Court's incorrect interpretation of the Constitution. Now, the states have been able to do some helpful things on the margins, and those were important steps, and they sometimes led to abortion-related cases going before the Supreme Court. The cases that the Supreme Court has heard in recent years have been about regulations regarding who can perform abortions, where they can be performed, and how they can be performed. For instance, a state may say that an abortion provider needs to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital if they are going to be performing abortions. So sometimes when states pass laws like these, abortionists will challenge them and courts will take a look at them and see whether the regulations create what the courts call an undue burden on a woman's ability to get an abortion. But even if the court rules that the regulation is a permissible one and allows it to stay in place, abortion is still allowed. They just have to be done in compliance with the state's regulations. That is what sets the current Supreme Court case apart from the ones that you've been reading about over the last decade or so. This is about a state's ability to stop abortions, not just regulate the way in which they are performed. The state of Mississippi chose to protect unborn children from abortion at and after 15 weeks gestation with very limited exceptions. Now, everyone agrees, absent a divine miracle from God, that a child cannot survive outside the womb at 15 weeks gestation given the current state of medicine. But Roe versus Wade, again, says the government cannot prohibit abortion before viability, that is, before a child is sufficiently developed to live outside the womb. So we have a conflict here. So it's no surprise that when Mississippi passed this law, an abortionist challenged it and prevailed in the lower courts. But now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. That's significant. The Supreme Court agrees to hear arguments in fewer than 100 cases per year, even though it's asked to hear thousands of cases each year. So the fact that the court is hearing this case means that at least four of the nine justices agreed to hear it. It's probably safe to assume that the justices who agreed to hear the case did so with the goal of overturning or at least modifying Roe versus Wade, because we wouldn't expect a justice who likes Roe versus Wade to agree to hear the case, because all that does is puts Roe versus Wade in jeopardy. So while four is the threshold to take a case, five is the threshold to win it. So we don't know how many justices agreed to hear the case, but it could be that there were only four and that they did so with the hope that they could convince a fifth justice to join them once that justice was put in the position of needing to take a position on whether Roe was right or wrong and whether it should go or not. So that's something that, you could, uh, that I encourage you to keep in prayer. Now, I wanna go back to something that I said earlier. 
which is that the challenged Mississippi law only protects children once they hit the age of 15 weeks gestation. So I know that that may disappoint many of you here because you want to see life protected from its beginning, from the moment of conception. So let me just encourage you by saying this. The state of Mississippi has directly asked the Supreme Court to reject Roe versus Wade entirely. Of course, the Supreme Court doesn't have to do that. It may try to find a middle road. But if it does accept Mississippi's request to get rid of Roe entirely, that means that states should be able to protect life from the very beginning. So that's a key reason why this case is so important. Finally, for the first time in nearly 30 years, the Supreme Court is going to squarely confront the decision in Roe versus Wade and decide whether to maintain or reject it. Now, as I said before, if the Supreme Court rejects Roe versus Wade, as the state of Mississippi has asked, then states will once again be able to step up and do what is right. We can expect some states to do that basically immediately. In fact, Mississippi itself is one of about a dozen states that has what is called a trigger law on the books. That is a law to protect children in the womb that will go into effect after Roe versus Wade is overturned. Other states, like California, can be expected to maintain abortion until the hearts of the people are transformed to see that human life in the womb is precious and deserves protection. And that's where you come in, my friends. And it's one of the reasons that I founded Reason for Life. There are so many in our nation who do not understand the truth about life in the womb. And they see abortion as morally permissible, and in some cases, even as a moral good. There are studies showing that this problem does not just exist within the world, but within the church itself. Churchgoers are turning to abortion themselves in vast numbers. There are significant portions of the church body who believe that the Bible is unclear about abortion or think that abortion is indeed morally acceptable. If those who call themselves followers of Christ accept abortion, what hope do we have of the world rejecting it? And who will shed light on this issue if the church is lost in darkness? So a primary focus of Reason for Life is to go to churches and other Christian institutions to preach about the sanctity of life and also to encourage and to equip the leaders at those ministries to share biblical and scientific truths about human life in the womb. So just as a little plug, if you're connected with a Christian school or college or seminary, or if you're visiting today from a different church, I'd love to have a chance to talk with your pastor or those school administrators about sharing the biblical and scientific case for life. I may be able to go there in person to preach or speak, or to encourage the Christian leaders there to do so themselves. And I also want you to know that there is a sample pro-life sermon that's available for free on Reason for Life's website, 
which is reasonforlife.org. So you can read that yourself just to become more educated on it. Or if you know some of these pastors or uh, leaders of Christian schools that you think may benefit from it, you can directly present it to them and encourage them to speak on these issues. You know, after all, while this is a controversial issue and a political issue, it is first and foremost a biblical issue that is close to the heart of God. And so we need those that are tasked with sharing biblical truths to have the boldness to speak out on this issue with truth and with love. I would also encourage each one of you to speak out for life in your own circles of influence, among your colleagues, your classmates, your family, and your friends. Proverbs 31, eight through nine instructs, open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. There are none more oppressed, vulnerable, and needy in the United States than the unborn. They cannot even utter a single word in their own defense. So let's be a voice for the voiceless and look for ways to show love to the most helpless among us. And let's help people see that abortion is actually a rejection of God's command to love. We know from John 15, verse 13, that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. With abortion, we do the exact opposite. Instead of laying down our own lives for the benefit of another, we lay down another's life for our own perceived benefit. How that must grieve the heart of God and how the devil must rejoice over that perversion. I would also say, let's promote the Bible's teaching that sexual relations should only occur within the confines of marriage. We know that that will avoid a lot of the issues that lead to women seeking abortions. But I'd also say, let's live and speak in a way that people know that they will find love and forgiveness if they fall short and repent. You know, it's tragic to think that some people may turn to the sin of abortion because they think that's preferable than the chance that their church or their Christian friend or family member may uh, judge them and be unwilling to forgive them because they fell short on the sin of sexual immorality. Now, as I get to the portion of the presentation where I'm going to discuss some specific prayer requests, I want to reemphasize something. The U.S. Supreme Court case that I've been talking about, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, is not just another abortion case. I was around seven years old, as Pastor Caleb noted in his kind introduction, when I decided to work towards ending abortion in America. This is the first time since then that the court has agreed to hear a case that poses a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. This is a moment that those in the pro-life movement have been awaiting decade after decade. And in those intervening decades, millions and millions of children have met a violent death, thousands per day, in the name of so-called constitutional rights. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just 
and that his justice cannot sleep forever. I don't even want to think about how terrible it will be if we do not see a victory for life and justice in the Dobbs case. So please pray that God will have mercy and grant a tremendous victory for life in that case. The stakes are incredibly high. Millions of lives are on the line. Indeed, I would say that the very fate of our nation may hang in the balance. On that front, here are a few specific matters that I urge you to cover in prayer. So oral argument in Dobbs is scheduled for December 1st. So please go ahead and mark your calendars for December 1st. The Mississippi Solicitor General, Scott Stewart, will argue the pro-life position. It is an incredibly grueling task to prepare for. So please, I would say, consider not only praying, but also fasting for General Stewart and his team as they prepare to plead for the lives of unborn children. You can pray and fast just as the Jewish people prayed and fasted for Queen Esther before she went for, before the king to plead for the lives of her people. Uh, please also pray for the justices of the United States Supreme Court. They have excellent arguments before them showing that they should indeed rule for life, but ruling for life requires courage. They face enormous pressure to maintain Roe versus Wade, and that pressure will likely intensify. So please pray that the justices will have the courage to rule for life and be instruments of true justice. And please pray that the enemy will not succeed in attacking those who will uphold justice. Remember, this is more than just a legal issue. As Ephesians says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, I've mentioned December 1st, and that is definitely an important day in the case. But much work will be done before then, and much work will be done after that day of argument. So please keep that in mind as you pray, and do not stop praying just because December 1st has passed. On December 1st, there are only 70 minutes allotted for argument, one hour and 10 minutes. And that is argument for Mississippi to argue the case for life, for the abortion clinic to argue for abortion, and for the United States to argue. And in this case, the United States is arguing for abortion. So with oral argument being so short, the written briefs in the case are critical for persuasion. At this point, the briefing in the case should be entirely complete unless some development occurs that requires supplemental briefing. So there are not only the main briefs of the parties, but there are also friend of the court briefs, which are also called amicus briefs or amicus briefs, depending on who you ask, that uh, interested groups can file in the case. As, as Pastor Caleb mentioned, I had the honor of writing and filing one of those amicus briefs, and many other groups filed briefs as well, 
with some arguing for abortion and others arguing for life. Because this case is so monumental in importance, I believe that around 130 amicus briefs were filed. And although they're called briefs, they are far from brief. So there is a mountain of arguments to wade through to say nothing of the sources that those briefs cite, which may also need to be reviewed in greater depth as well. So each of the nine justices has law clerks working for the justice. And those law clerks are going to be wading through those briefs and writing memos that call the justices' attentions to arguments and evidence that they think are worthy of the justices' time. So please pray that the clerks themselves will present to the justices the arguments and evidence that will help those justices be convinced to rule for life. You know, the Mississippi Solicitor General and his team are also going to be going through those briefs and reviewing past court cases, articles, and evidence in preparation for oral argument. When the Solicitor General of Mississippi goes before the court on December 1st, he will not just be presenting a monologue as I am right now. He will almost certainly face frequent interruptions by the justices who will pepper him with tough questions, and it will be important for him to give succinct, convincing responses in the very short time that he has allotted and before he is interrupted by a subsequent justice. To do that effectively, he is going to try to anticipate every possible question that he may be asked and think of the best responses ahead of time. So please pray that God will give him and his team wisdom to correctly anticipate the questions that he will confront so that he can avoid being blindsided and pray that he would have wisdom as he decides what is going to be the best and most persuasive response to those questions that he's anticipating. And I would also ask you to pray that God will keep the Mississippi Solicitor General and his team in good health as they are undoubtedly working long, strenuous hours. Now, because oral arguments are short and the briefing is extensive, it's hard to win a case based on your performance at oral argument. It is much easier to lose your case at oral argument by making a detrimental admission. We know that there are many biblical examples of God confusing those who oppose him and even turning armies against themselves. And it would be very helpful to have detrimental admissions and arguments from the two attorneys who will be advocating for the killing of unborn children on December 1st. And of course, prayers are in order for the Mississippi Solicitor General as well to not fall into any traps as he is confronted with questions in that very intense uh, grilling that he will undoubtedly get on December 1st. So on December 3rd, two days after the oral argument, the justices are scheduled to meet in a room around a table and discuss the case and their views on the case. They will essentially cast preliminary votes determining which is the apparent losing side and which is the apparent winning side. And then at that conference, there will be an assignment 
of which justice in the majority will write the majority opinion. Now, which justice is assigned the opinion can impact the strength and breadth of the opinion. So the, the dis, uh, assignment of the drafting can itself be very important. So clearly, December 3rd is another critical day to have in mind as you pray. Now, you may have noticed that I referred to the apparent winning side and the apparent losing side uh, being discussed at that conference. And I say that because the justices can change their minds. When the draft opinions are circulated uh, internally within the court, both the opinions of the majority and the dissenters, a justice may read a decision from the other side and change his or her mind. You know, if the original breakdown is a five to four decision, then a change of one justice can result in a completely reverse decision. And then you can also have smaller changes that are still very consequential. For example, a justice can circulate a draft opinion and then receive pushback from the other justices. The justices um, you may want the opinion to not go as far as it does. So let's say the, the side for life is winning and a very strong opinion for life is written. And then one of the justices in the majority says, oh, I don't want to go that far. Let's just protect children later on in pregnancy or something along those lines. And it may be necessary if the other justices can't succeed in convincing them otherwise to uh, bend to those requests if that justice is required to form a majority. So there's these, this back and forth of draft opinions and this give and take that will be happening in the months following the argument. So uh, we probably won't see the court announce its final decision until this upcoming summer. So until we have a decision in hand from the court, I would encourage you to keep this case in prayer and pray that God will continue to work in the hearts of the justices to rule well in this case. Beyond the Supreme Court, I would also just encourage you to pray that God will transform our nation to be one that values and protects God's amazing gift of human life. And pray that God will forgive our nation for its bloodshed and have mercy on us. Please also pray that pastors, Christian schools, Christian ministries, and each follower of Christ, each one of us, will courageously and lovingly shine God's light in the darkness to expose the evil of abortion. Pray that mothers, fathers, and the broader family will see each child in the womb as a gift from God who should be welcomed with love and joy. Harkening back to the book of Esther, I believe that each one of you are alive today for such a time as this. So I urge you to let your cries for justice be heard by God and by man. Go forth and proclaim the truth that God's precious gift of life begins at the moment of conception. Be a voice of truth. Be a voice of for life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each precious individual here and watching. Lord, I thank you that they have a heart for you and a heart for the unborn. 
And God, I ask that you would equip them with wisdom and courage that can only come from you to be bold ambassadors of your truth on this critical issue. Lord, give them opportunities and the courage to step into them, to be a voice for the voiceless, and to save those who are being led away to death. Lord, I pray that you would keep this case on our minds and hearts, that we would not forget about it, but that we would be in prayer and intercession for all the matters and intricacies that this case involves. Lord, that you would be with Scott Stewart, the Mississippi Solicitor General and his team as they prepare. Lord, that you would prepare the hearts of the justices to do what is right and that we would see a victory for life in this case. Lord, that you would move upon this nation, that you would transform hearts and minds, that you would take off the blinders and help us recognize the gift of life for what it is. We praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy that you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.